Welcome to Gender Meowster Podcast Network. Genderful is a talk show featuring non-binary and trans folks discussing various topics and special interests. We kindly remind our listeners that no person is a monolith of identities. All opinions are the speaker's own. This show airs live on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash gender meowster and VODs with show notes can also be found on YouTube. Meowdy folks, welcome to Genderful, a talk show featuring non-binary and trans folks discussing various topics and special interests. Content warnings for this episode include dysphoria, transphobia, mental health, ableism, religion, bullying, and being misgendered. So hi everyone, I'm Gender Meowster, I use they them pronouns, and I will let my wonderful guest introduce guest's self. Hello. Awesome. Hi, I am TF Wright, and I'm an independent author and game developer. And I use any pronouns. Awesome. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. May I call you. you Wright or TF or either of those? Either of those is fine. It's so fun. Before we dive too deeply into our questions, do you want to tell the audience about how you picked your name? Oh, yeah. So I originally started by doing a lot of transformation themed short stories. And so TF right is a pun. TF is like a common abbreviation for transformation and right is like another way of spelling writer. So TF right, like transformation writer. <laughs> That's so fun. I love that. So, right. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. We met because you basically cold called me via email and yes. you were like, Hey, you're a non-binary slash gender diverse content creator on the internet. I have this cool game. Do you want to try it? on stream and i was like who are you tell me more and then we went back and forth a little bit and then i played it and i loved it yay yay so your game is called wicked willow and it's so fun yeah you did a really great stream it was very entertaining i think i i watched i watched either all the stream or most of the stream and it was very fun i send out a lot of emails as you can imagine most of those emails do not get responded to but some of them do. And yeah, I'm, I'm so happy we connected. It was really fun. It was also so fun having you in the chat, like knowing things about it and being like, fun fact of this, fun fact of that. And I was like, ah, <laughs> it was also fun to have you there. Watch me make guesses about characters and things that might be going on with them. And you'd be like, wait and see. Ha 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 ha. I really like catching streams. It's, I feel like it's helpful in a lot of ways. Like, first of all, like it helps support the creators and create like a better stream experience in some ways if I can answer questions or provide fun facts. But it's also useful for me too, because I can see what jokes are working and what jokes aren't working by catching mm -hmm. people's live reactions. And I also feel like it's very motivating. If I know in the future that something that I do will be like enjoyed on a live experience that I can share, that motivates me to like work harder creating it because they can anticipate that as like a emotional payoff in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like totally motivating and encouraging. Having that feedback loop, that positive feedback loop is so great. I can tell you when I go live, it's, I always have this, oh no, is anyone going to show up? I don't know. It's hard to do the, but the thing. And I'm at the point now where at least some people show up every stream. It's cool. That's great. I'm not streaming to an empty room almost ever anymore. It's pretty rad. And I just feel really lucky and grateful that People are interested at all in whatever the heck I'm up to. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple questions I like to ask all of my guests. So take them how you will. And for those in the audience, I have told TF that we would be going over these. So 
It's not a total surprise. But if you have questions for our guest today, you can write, you can either write them in the Twitch chat, write the phrase question beforehand. So then we know what, that it's a question and not just a comment, or you can use the ask me anything channel in discord and the mods will pass it to us. So first thing for you, right? What are the things that you can trace back to your youth that indicated you might be gender diverse of some flavor one day? Was your childhood unusual in any way that you'd like to discuss? It was extremely unusual. I had these very out there hippie parents that raised me in a, like a very different way than most like I, I, w- I was assigned male of birth. The vast majority of assigned male of birth people in the 1980s like were not raised in the way that I was raised. My parents, for example, didn't let me watch any live television. Oh. They didn't want me to know violence existed, so they wouldn't allow me to read a book that had the word gun in it. If a book did have the word gun in it, they would glue the pages of the book together so that I wouldn't see the word gun. They got me a doll to play with before they got me any toy weapons. And so you have two halves of this coin. So you have parents that kind of went out of their way to socialize me very different than most other assigned male at birth people. And then when they enrolled me at school and I was bullied like incredibly mercilessly for the ways that my gender expression were different than other boys, they acted confused about this. They didn't expect it. And then when it happened, they're like, huh, I wonder why that's happening. Maybe you can try harder to be friends with them or whatever. It was just this strange mystery why I didn't have friends. And so that was a little bit, that was a little bit off-putting to me that there, there was such a big discongruity between those two experiences. So yeah, I had that. And then I guess as I got older, there were other things that I noticed that were very different, like... For example, I remember that my little sister would get like a lot of compliments and having really long hair. And I remember feeling jealous of the way that she was praised for having long hair. And so I also wanted long hair. And so I remember having this like disagreement about how long my hair was like allowed to get, for example. That was a thing that I had with my family that I don't think most people do. Although I want to put an asterisk next to that because there's always like a sort of cultural context behind that. There are some cultures in which having long hair can be interpreted as masculine and okay. But yeah, it's not necessarily gendered behavior, but it is in our particular culture. So I could probably talk on and on, but I think I've probably said enough to satisfy the question. What about like your relationship to gender over time? So you're not a kid anymore. Something happened between then and now. And so how has your relationship with gender identity, gender presentation evolved over time or perhaps transformed over time? Yes. So one of the things that shifted why I became a teenager was that still had a lot of trouble making friends, still did a lot of things like spending lunches in the library reading instead of talking to people. And one of the things that I did was I was reading a lot of like romance stories and stuff. And I didn't really identify with the male characters in romance stories, typically Mm -hmm. because the male characters were, they were usually very dominant. They were usually pushy. The way romance was a lot of times is I give it as almost like a one-way emotion. Like typically Mm -hmm. in romance books that are marketed to like straight cis women, romance is something men do at women and women just receive it. And for, so for a variety of reasons, I didn't really identify with those types of love stories. And then I started reading like like lesbian love stories and I felt like I identified more with that than with the heterosexual stuff. And then from then on, I also started reading like gender change stories, like 
I recognize that in 2022, the genre of a story as gender change is either like it's an inaccurate term or the term may be perceived as like outdated or potentially offensive, depending on how you look at it. But like in the early 2000s, that was what stories were called. If you Mm -hmm. physically transform, those were called gender change stories. So again, now you might say the gender didn't change because the gender was already the same. So it was like, let's just put that aside, that that part of the conversation aside for a moment. So I really got into reading gender change stories. At some point I was writing gender change stories and everything. So I really, I really got into that aspect of it. And in terms of, as I got older, like I spent a lot of time, I spent at this point, like over 10 years trying to come up with a good word to describe my identity. And I still don't think that I have one and I'm probably not going to. And that's okay because I've like just made peace with the fact that it's what I really want is it's not necessarily a word. What I want is the ability to tell a short version of my story to someone using a word. Does that make sense? It's like a time saving device. It's not necessarily that I need to discover who I am because I know who I am. And I'm basically content with who I am, like to a degree that is possible anyway. But I feel like I would love to be able to describe myself easier. So I think the best way to do it is that I'm someone that like, would prefer to be the opposite gender or the opposite sex, depending on how you think about it. But for a variety of reasons, I don't really want to transition. So I'm still going to go through the world as a like male presenting person, even though I have this like feminine side to my brain. And I also, I also want to put an asterisk next to it because I think that if I grew up in a culture in which being feminine was like, extremely encouraged and celebrated in men, I think it's possible that I wouldn't have any like dysphoria at all. Mm-hmm. So I also want to say that I'm not sure to what degree my gender identity has been like constructed by the restrictive nature of the culture that I grew up in. And I obviously don't like that part of the culture very much. So it's I don't necessarily know how much degree of legitimacy to give its influence upon me, if that makes sense. So I don't know of any word that describes that type of experience. Do you? So there's a couple different pieces, right? So there's gender identity, which is what's in your brain. And then there's gender presentation, which is how you look out to the world. Part of what I hear you talking about is the, basically the problems that hypermasculinity and the patriarchy cause by saying that you, if you're a man, you you must be hypermasculine. You can't identify as a man, but then present feminine. That's like against the rules, according to the cisheads. I think it's a grab bag and you get to do whatever the heck you want, but that's me. <laughs> yeah, so, and that's what I'm That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to just live as myself and just try to embrace uh, who I am, like as, as much as I can. I have a, I have a phobia of like medicine and doctors and stuff. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the, I, I have a variety of reasons why I don't want to actually transition. That's for example, one of them. So I see it as like, almost like a cost benefit analysis in my brain. It's would I want to just snap my fingers and magically become a girl? Yes. I would not, I would not hesitate to say yes. Do yeah. I want to go through this expensive, painful process that involves, like I said, among other things, me having a phobia of like doctors and medicine, do I want to do this whole process? And the answer is at this point in my life, no, that doesn't actually appeal to me. Yeah. I came out as non-binary and socially transitioned, changed my name, changed my pronouns four years before I considered any sort of HRT or medical intervention at all. And for me, I got a ton of euphoria from going by 
my real life name, which I'm not going to say on stream, and my new pronouns and the sort of affirmation that I received like at work when I got my new name tag and my friends that called me by my new name was really encouraging. So there's so many ways to transition, right? There's social transition, there's medical transition, which is what I'm hearing you say you have a lot of trepidation and resistance to. But there's plenty of like trans femmes or like non-binary people or gender diverse people who are trans with zero medical intervention. Like they've just done the social transition, a social transition. And let's be real, that sort of never ends. We're constantly coming out. Every time you meet someone, you tell them your name and hopefully pronouns. And who knows? Yeah, maybe. I, I have considered that. I've considered, like, well, what if I just, what if I do that? Or another thing is, what if I construct like a, like an identity that I'm just going to use online as like my TF identity and I, I'm able to do that without having to do anything else? I have considered that, but it's, I, I, I will think about it. I'll say this. There is a part of me that hesitates in doing that because I think to myself, what is, is my goal to hear people call me something different? Because I think in some ways it would almost, I'm trying to think of the right word. Okay, I'll give you an example. Sure. So I was at a, a a Chinese restaurant with my wife and this woman, the, the waitress was walking like behind the table. She asked me a question in Chinese and then, then she walked in front of the table and then she said, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry in Chinese like over and over again. And then everyone at the table laughed except for me. And my wife, who is Chinese, she told me the whole story afterwards. She said, oh, okay. But when she walked behind the table, she just saw you with long hair and she said, would you like some more water, miss? And then when she came over and saw you, she said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And that was apparently funny to everybody. And I feel like that story is a microcosm of what I sometimes try to avoid by like listing my pronouns, for example, as like she, because I feel like if I went out of my way to tell people that my pronoun was she, it would almost be reminding me that of like parts of myself that I would prefer not to think about. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a lot of what I hear you describing. I remember when you brought this up in the Discord server, you were like, is there a name for this? And someone answered, oh yeah, that's called closeted. And then you were, I just imagined your action like <laughs> a gas or, or a gab or something like just taken aback and surprised by that response. It's not a reaction that I expected. No. Yeah. And I saw that and I was like, that's true. It's also, I don't know. It's direct. It's very, it's a very direct way of describing that. And so then it brings up the sort of inquiry of can, can being closeted be a, an identity? Is that a status or is it an identity? Is there a difference between those things? And I do think like identities can change over time. Yes. And so that's fair. I also think you don't owe coming out to anyone. You don't owe socially transitioning to anyone. I can also tell you that of all the trans identified people that I've talked to that they talk about how there came a point in their life even if they had all this fear that you're talking about or anxiety or like you don't want to deal with a hassle whatever it is that I don't want to deal with it sort of feelings yeah. that there came a point where for them and for me not presenting as their authentic inner self became no longer an option and we don't hear about the people who just choose to be closeted forever because they don't come out and they don't want to talk about it. And so well, it's like a one-sided conversation, right? Yeah, that's another cost-benefit thing. It's if you are, you don't have an incentive to do it. And I think there was somebody that was talking about a really cool, like there was a cool study, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it, where they were looking at like 
how many people say they're LGBT in each generation, and each generation is more LGBT than the last. And then somebody's, oh, that means that we're brainwashing people to become more LGBT. It's like, no, that's not true. Here's a good way of thinking about it. The largest increase in LGBT people is an increase of self-described bisexuals, right? That's the largest Mm -hmm. group that has gone up in a percentage. If you identify as someone that is bisexual, that is primarily attracted to opposite gender people, if that's your identity, Mm -hmm. in the past, there would be no incentive for you to ever out yourself because you could probably live a contented life without disclosing that part of yourself to anybody. Now, you can disclose that part of yourself and explore romantic attractions to both genders or all genders or whatever. You can do that. And the the cost to you is less than it was a few decades ago. So that explains why that group has grown so much because there's a lot of people who previously would have occupied like space in that group that felt very little reason to out themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So there is definitely a piece of people not choosing to come out or not choosing to transition socially or medically or otherwise until it's safe or safer. Kids, youth, know that sometimes they know they're trans way before they ever come out and they can't do it until they move out of their caretaker or parent or whoever's guardian's house Mm because it's not a safe place for them to make that choice. And the other inquiry might be like if you're living in a more conservative location versus a more liberal location. Like if you were living and breathing 24-7 in a place where everyone was trans, would it be easier to come out and not take HRT, but wear a dress and do whatever you want with your facial hair? And would it be easier to do that if everyone around you was just cool with it and you weren't worried about all of the extra meaning outside of yourself, societal pressure to look or behave a certain way? That's a really good question. I have thought about that a lot. And I think in some ways, yes. And also in some ways, no. So it's actually interesting. Like on the one end, it's yes, because I already am talking about this more than like I have in the past. I would probably just never talk about this stuff with anybody. So yes, I think it would be easier to talk. But I also think in some ways, like the level of dysphoria that I feel is some ways like directly related to how much I see other people like adhering to traditional gender roles. So I'll give Mm. you an example. When I'm around like really macho guys Mm -hmm. that are acting in like uncomfortable, toxic masculinity type ways, like my gender dysphoria will go through the roof, like just being around that because I'll feel like really uncomfortable just like witnessing it and feeling like I'm associated with it or tainted with it or something like that. That tends to make me feel really uncomfortable. And really that tends to increase my like internal dysphoria level. If I was never around that... If I was around like tons of people who identified as either like male or were perceived as like male presenting, but like never acted that way or seemed really comfortable with being feminine, Mm -hmm. I think in some ways my dysphoria would actually go down because I would think to myself, I don't have to associate these like certain parts of myself with this, like this thing that I don't really like. So Mm -hmm. I feel like in some ways, yes, but also potentially in some ways it would go in the opposite direction. So I would actually, I would really love to live in a place like that. That sounds like a cool, like setting for a story or something. I don't know. It sounds really (laughs) cool. I think that it would have interesting and potentially like conflicting effects. Yeah. Yeah. There was a time in my life where I didn't want to start HRT or any of those things because I didn't want to look like a man and have people think (laughs) and have people think I was a man because not all, but many of the men that I'd ever met were hypermasculine and unfortunate. There's a lot of other words I could put there, but I'm just going to go with unfortunate. 
The yes. beha- their behavior was not great. And so I didn't want to be associated with that. So for a long time, I resisted my own masculinity because I didn't want to be associated with that. And for me, as time has gone on, I've realized like, oh, actually, I can customize my avatar, my meat suit, however I want to. And I can be the counterpoint. I can be someone who maybe maybe one day I will look even more like a man, but be non-binary identified in my brain and and be a feminist, an intersectional feminist and call dudes out on it. And maybe because I'm taking that like masculine power, people will listen to me more, which is so weird and hecked up. Like we should just listen to women the end. But if I can use the weird male privilege that I suddenly appear to be having because I'm putting testosterone in my leg every Tuesday. Okay. <laughs> it's so strange. Sounds good. Sounds good. So people in the chat are like, oh, wait, I remember Meowster playing Wicked Willow. They're like putting pieces together. The you made Wicked Willow. So let's talk about game development. How about? Yeah. So I'm enjoying our conversations. Thank you so much for that. We totally wandered off into the over there for a while. So what are some early reading and writing as a teen that inspired or captivated you? So I really liked the choose your own adventure stories as a little kid, especially the ones that involved like magical transformations. I thought that was really fun. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said earlier, I, I got really into reading like lesbian romances and like gender change romances and stuff. And so that was a big inspiration for me. For those of you who are wondering, yes, I was the creator, writer, and a coder for Wicked Willow. For those of you who are wondering, no, I'm not the voice of Avery. Almost every time I talk, some, somebody asks me that because apparently the timbre of our voices are very similar. But no, I was not the voice actor for Avery. Oh my gosh, Avery is so great. <laughs> yes. And you can see that I incorporated like portions of myself into all of the characters. Mm-hmm. Some of what we have talked about in this episode or was went into how I created the Avery character is like a part of myself. The part of myself that I feel like the character that I feel like I'm the most close to is Willow. But when I share that with people, they don't seem to understand that because they're like, oh, but you're so nice. And you seem like such a cool person. Willow's all grumpy and shouty and mean. And I was like, Willow is me in a very bad mood with no filter mm-hmm. and like maybe 10 less IQ points or something. But I think of my self image is more like Willow than Avery. I love that. Who doesn't want to be a feisty babe? Feisty yeah, bisexual babe solving the world's problems one fail at a time. <laughs> yeah, she is. There's there, there's a line where she where Tanya says, let go of your anger. And Willow says, how can I feel angry all the time? And there's another line where Tanya says, you have every right to be angry with me. And Willow says, all sense of messages, bleep you. I don't need your permission to feel my feelings. And that's a very, that's a very me line. That's something I would say if I felt very upset. I don't need your permission to feel my feelings. We have a clarifying question from the chat from Mercedes. They ask, so Willow is how you feel you reflect onto people. If I'm, Willow is the person that I see myself as like internally, but I go out of my way not to reflect that onto people because I understand that Willow does a lot of stuff that's like really rude and inconsiderate. So a lot of the times if I'm in a situation that I don't particularly like, like I'm talking to someone that I think is annoying and they say something that I think is stupid, all my first reaction will be, 
what Willow was thinking, where she might say something mean or insensitive or dismissive or sarcastic. And then I actually have to edit it out. I have to think, no, don't say that's going to sound bad. And then I filter it away. When I was younger, I would get very emotional. I would go through huge ranges of being like incredibly sad, incredibly angry, just as a very big volcano. And as I've gotten older, I have not learned to control that. I still feel the volcano just as strong in my heart. What I have learned to do is talk myself out of reacting verbally immediately. I have this like debate with myself in my head. I'm like, no, you don't need to say that. It's not in your interest to say that. If you throw a big fit, it's not going to help you. Just take a deep breath and just try to do something else. And then most of the time I'm able to succeed at not acting that way. And Willow's kind of like how I would act if I didn't go through that process. And I just reacted with my gut every single time I had a thought. So you do game developing. What did you do before that? I think you have a bit of a backstory that folks are interested in hearing more about. Yeah, I've done a bunch of different stuff. My first thing was I worked in politics. I have a master's degree in political science and I worked on politics for many years. I worked as a fundraiser, like when Avery was doing the little clipboard thing to raise money for ELF. That was also based on me. I worked at an organization like that. I actually worked my way all the way up to manager of the whole office. So I was a manager of about 30 people. And then I also worked on a mayor election. I worked on the Obama campaign. I did a bunch of different political jobs. And then after that, I also did a lot of indie writing. I wrote like 50 romance slash erotica transformation stories. 50? Five zero? Yes. That's so many. Yes. How many of those are queer? Depends on how you define queer, <laughs> Sure. but I would say probably 60, 70% of them. Nice. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to say about your prior career in politics? Yeah. If anyone asks, what's it like working in politics? There's a lot of people have this like false assumption that it's like house of cards or something. And that's not true at all. That's how it is for the very top people that like work in Washington or like work in somebody's office. For 90% of people that work in politics, what you're essentially doing is a sales job. And it's if you're doing fundraising or something like that, which is what I was doing, you're essentially just having the same conversation with people over and over again, trying to get them to give you money. And it doesn't necessarily feel like politics. It just feels like you're asking them to buy a product and the product is the donation, basically. So yeah, it's a lot less glamorous and exciting. It's just, and it's really soul crushing because obviously... I have never lived in a time period where people weren't struggling economically. Like everyone always seems to be struggling with something because we live in very troubling times basically. And so asking hard on their luck people to give money to some nebulous thing that may help them or may help the country at some point in the future can get very like soul crushing and like having to fire people for not getting enough donations. It's just, it's unpleasant, but it's unpleasant in ways that are very different than the ways most people expect that it is. And so how did you go from doing all of that to now you're more into game development and writing? Okay. So when I was getting a master's degree, I read an article by this woman and I forget what her name was, but the point of the article was that she decided to make a series of stories about women who go back in time to have sex with dinosaurs. That sounds like the craziest thing in the world, right? Like, how is this a series? (laughs) But not only was it a series, she made $100,000 a year doing this. Oh my gosh. And I was like, what? If she can make $100,000 with this premise, which honestly is just 
I have never met, I've met a lot of people who are into a lot of different things. I've never met anybody that's specifically into this. So this is very, very niche. So I was like, I have a following. I had at that point done a lot of writing as a hobby. So I was like, why can't I try to turn my following into doing short stories and and eBooks and stuff like this person? I was able to turn it into a full-time income. I basically gave a full year and a half worth of effort into it. And I was able to take it into a full-time income stream and also got my master's degree. But unfortunately in 2015, Amazon changed the way they pay authors. Hmm. So that essentially gave me like a pay cut of 40% overnight, which made it, yeah, which made it really hard. And they also started like recommending you less often if you were like indie and did short stories. So that was unfortunate, but I recently decided to do more writing again, just because writing is a lot less stressful than making games. And I figured I, want to give myself a break and do something that's creative, but it's a little bit less stressful. So I'm going to try it again and see where it takes us. But yeah, unfortunately, the reality is that anytime there's any type of activity that is able to make you money as an indie content creator, as soon as it becomes successful enough to people start like writing articles about it, then it will become either like oversaturated or the person that runs the platform will change it in some way to make it harder to make money. Like in 2011, it was like content farms and then it was Amazon and then it was like Twitch and then it was like Steam and every single thing that people tend to go to, at some point the spigot gets turned off and it becomes really tough for indie creators. So that's the reality is that there's always some sort of weird financial challenge that we have to deal with. Yeah, which then like a lot of those indie creators um, either stop creating or create less often because they have to get Mm -hmm. day jobs and so the rate of productivity goes down and then you have less diversity of stories being told. Yes, which is really unfortunate because the reality is that we're all better off if there's like a great diversity of stories. Yeah. We're all better off if like you can have those different voices and stuff. And I wish there was a better way to do it, but yeah, I don't know what it is. Patreon was like a thing for a while, but that's also become oversaturated. So yeah, that's always been really difficult for me is trying to figure out how to best because the thing is i don't want to do this to make money like i want to just be a creative person and just share what i have with the world and hopefully it makes people happy that's primarily what i want to do i want to spend most of my energy like coming up with cool ideas i don't want to spend most of my energy like trying to figure out how to make the money angle work but i also want to make sure that i'm justifying my time and investments that i can pay my bills and stuff yeah so that's unfortunate Yeah, it's unfortunate that I have to spend that much energy on that part of it. But yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, it's, gosh, that part is so like tricky to navigate. The one thing that I've found that can be helpful is diversifying your income stream. So if one thing gets nerfed, you still have some other stuff going on. So having, giving two or three ways for people to subscribe instead of one. But yeah, I agree with what Miriam is saying in the chat here. Our world isn't really set up for just being creative without some kind of hustle. We have a lot of creators in the chat that make different sorts of things. And I think we're just all collectively feeling this pain together (laughs) right now. Capitalism doesn't like creativity. It likes worker bees. And so when it's, but I want to make the art that inspires the soul of the worker bee. It's, it's just like convincing people to give you money for politicians. It's like convincing people to give you money to make art. <laughs> yeah, it is unfortunate aspect has followed me in just about every single thing that I've done. Yeah. Do you, okay, this isn't a question that I wrote ahead of time. Do you feel like you might be somewhere on the neurodivergent spectrum? 
I don't know. That's a really good question. I've never been like diagnosed, but yeah, I do it's think hard to get that, diagnosed. Yeah, I do think it's conceivable that I may have some type of AD adjacent type thing. I don't know because I do tend to like to focus on one thing and not get distracted into multitasking. That tends to be my preferred way of doing things. I have heard a lot of people mention that about how they can get thrown off if they're distracted too much in the middle of a train of thought. Because I don't like if I want to tell like a really exciting story and then someone interrupts me while in the middle of the story, I'm like, oh, but I wanted to tell the story. Sometimes I can't listen to what the person is saying because I'm trying to keep what I wanted to say fresh in my mind. So it's certainly possible. But that's another one of those cost benefit things where I think to myself, like, is it worth it to try to get diagnosed? I'm like, well, I have so many friends that are neurodivergent that have mentioned so many negative things about their interaction with the medical sphere that I almost like, I don't want to even try to interact with it at this point. Yeah. One, I ask because a lot of neurodivergent people tend to flourish personally better if they're self-employed or self-directed at their jobs instead of having a boss telling them what to do. I feel like we have giant authority buttons. Ah, heck authority. Yeah, I actually had a day job very briefly last year because I was trying to pick up the slack for some of the creative stuff not working out as well as it I would have hoped it would. But I had a boss who said, I want you to be like the content creator person for this media platform that I'm creating. It was like a, it was like a news media platform. And I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. And I really liked the guy. He was like a really cool person. And very quickly it became clear that he did not want someone to create content. What he actually wanted was someone to be like his secretary and to just transcribe his thoughts and schedule his meetings and give him reminders to do things. And whenever I would do something, he would just say, no, rewrite this to paraphrase what I had said earlier. He didn't actually want any of my ideas. He just wanted like a secretary to organize his life, basically. He didn't want a writer, he wanted an editor. Yeah, exactly. And like the reality is, and then I would often be asked to do other things like, hey, like edit this video, or I want you to like reach out to this other person to see if we can get like an interview or something. And I'm like, I thought I was going to be writing stuff. Yeah, like There is a part of me that thinks that I should have just sucked it up because it would have provided some degree of stability, but like being treated like a secretary when I was told that that wasn't my job did really rub me the wrong way and made me resent the interactions that I had. So I eventually ended up quitting. Yeah. Yeah. Related to the topic of being neurodivergent and being self-employed, why did you pick indie writing and indie games Have you always been independent or have you ever tried to work for a bigger game or writing studio? I have attempted to work for like studios that like I've sent out my resume, but I've never actually heard back from anybody who's interested in an interview or anything. I would be open to it potentially if I had a degree of creative control. But no, originally I wanted to do indie books just because, like I said, I saw the dinosaur lady and I was like, I feel like if she can do it, I can do it. And then when I was doing games, what I was doing was I had a partner that I was working with to do illustrated stories. And we had this idea of what if we did a very short, like a demo of a visual novel, but it was so well received that we decided to turn it into a full game, basically. And so he did all the art and I did like the writing and the programming and stuff. So that was how I ended up creating my first game, which was the Pirate's Fate. So yeah, would it have been possible to work with a studio? Originally, I was working with a studio or someone who claimed that they were a studio. But this is the thing that was so frustrating is that he said he was a studio, but actually what he really was essentially like a PR agency and he didn't do very good PR. And we received no help with the exception of just like very bare minimum PR. And so eventually we were like, okay, 
we don't want to work with you anymore. So that's the thing is I've had, I'm not necessarily saying I'm going to say no to working for someone or with someone, but I want to be in a respectful relationship with someone. And I want someone to actually like, if they're going to work with me, I want them to be able to like pull their own weight and everything. Yeah, totally. How does your identity inform what stories you want to tell? How do you incorporate your identity into your writing? So I think it's pretty much impossible not to incorporate your identity into your writing because you have to draw on your own experiences to create authentic emotions in writing. Like, obviously, that's not the only place that you can do, but I think that's true for every writer, whether they acknowledge it or not. In my case, if you look at, like, Wicked Willow, like I said, I think every character in some ways is a reflection of certain aspects of myself. So like Willow is how I see my like grumpy side with no filter. Avery is how I see myself in terms of my sometimes deference to people and like gender issues. Shadow is how I see myself sometimes in terms of my sense of humor. Zarcy is how I see myself sometimes in terms of my clergyness or sexuality or whatever. So I feel like I have different parts of myself sometimes. And then the other thing basically is that when I was writing like the indie stories that were like romance or erotica, one of the things that I really wanted to do was I wanted to create stories that people could just identify with and enjoy reading and based on the stuff that I wished I had a chance to read. So if I'm writing a story that is like a gender change story, it's the kind of thing that I would imagine would be fun to happen to me. Or I said, I'd put like an asterisk next to the question of like how, what percent of your stories are like, quote unquote, queer because I think queer is a thing that's I remember talking to someone who was a journalist uh, who was in San Francisco and she said the phrase she said I think fat is a queer aesthetic I think that like muscle on women is a queer aesthetic and I said I think that's not true because just because you're fat or you have muscles or whatever that doesn't necessarily make you queer but she responded by saying but these are forms of beauty that don't exist in like the heterosexual gaze therefore whether or not they are, whether or not the person who has them is queer, the aesthetic itself is queer. Mm. And I don't necessarily agree with that way of looking at it, but as I've gotten older, I've come to see that is like a legitimate point of view, even if it's not necessarily my point of view. So if I write about a cup in which you have a very feminine guy and then like a woman who's seven feet tall and a huge bodybuilder or something, is that a couple that employs a queer aesthetic, even though they're heterosexual? It depends on how you look at it. It is and isn't at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I also like, I want to write stories that are about like queer people, but that I also want to write like heterosexual stories that are like employing quote unquote queer aesthetics that wouldn't necessarily exist for a lot of people. If you're a, if you think of yourself as a feminine straight guy and you want to read like a romance story, there isn't really a lot out there for you on Amazon. It's just, there's nothing that's mic marketed to you. So that's, that's part of who I want to reach, but I also want to reach just like queer people of all kinds also. So it's like an amalgam of creating the stuff that isn't necessarily there, exploring different forms of like beauty that aren't necessarily catered to by the mainstream media is another thing that I really like. So yeah, I feel like all of those things are like motivations for me to write. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us more about like your creative process, what it looks like a day in the life of going to work and doing the thing. One of the things that is true for a lot of writers and it's true, at least for me, is that there's two phases of writing. One is the part where you do the writing. And then the other part is the part where you do the typing. If you've gotten to the point where these two are the same thing, you've 
probably made a mistake somewhere. And that's usually where the concept of writer's block comes in. If you're doing, if you have writer's block, what that means is that you've broken that rule. The writing part is the part where you're essentially just sitting down and staring off into space and thinking about what you want to say. And then when you actually sit down and type, it should be like most of the way formulated in your mind. And you're just trying to worry about how to say it, if that makes sense. So the typing phase is not necessarily easier, but if you're comfortable where you're going when you've already gotten to the typing phase, you generally don't have to worry. You're just like, okay, I did the writing in my mind and that was good. And so now I'm at the typing phase. And so a lot of writers who are more amateur, what they'll do is they'll have a really cool setup. They're like, here's what I want to do. I want to do like a story that's like King Arthur, but an all female cast or something. And then they'll start typing the story. And then all of a sudden they're like, now I'm just recreating King Arthur, but I'm not necessarily doing anything new with it. What should I do? And then they'll just sit there at their computer, their hands at the keyboard frozen. And I just think to myself, you need to make a mental outline of what it is you want to do before you start typing, because Mm -hmm. having to think about how to word your sentences takes so much mental effort that there's nothing left for figuring out what should come in next to the story. Or at least that's true for me. Yeah. I know when I was writing more regularly, I would do outlines on paper with a pen. Yep, then, that's good. Think about it and write it down and rearrange stuff and like the, just totally messy, not even rough draft, just messy outline. And I wouldn't is, start typing until I'd have an outline and sort of the all the stuff written down. Yeah, that is exactly the right way to do it because you're using that part of your brain first so that when you can start typing, you don't have to you don't have to do two things at once. Yeah. Well, and even when I would write research papers, like I would read a bunch of stuff formulate my arguments, maybe outline bullet points of what I want the arguments to be, but I wouldn't put the sentences together with the formatting and the footnotes and the stuff until way later in the process. Yeah. Cool. Can you tell us more about the topics that you like to explore in terms of relationships, gender dynamics, transformations? You've said some about it, but I wonder if there's more you'd like to say about it. Sure. So Basically, I have two things that I like, and then everything that I like to write about is connected to one or both of those things. So the first thing that I like I like to write about is something I mentioned earlier, which is like alternative explorations of beauty. And that could include the aesthetic of masculinity in women or plus size beauty appreciation or something like that. And then the other thing I like to do is I like to explore some type of inversion of traditional gender roles. So that could be something like a gender change story, or it could be something like just a gender role reversal story or, or something that plays around with female dominance in some way, shape or form, which could be with two women or a man and a woman or or whatever. That's generally what I like. And then there's little sub themes. Like I like anything that pokes fun at politics or religion is also fun too. But, but yeah, those are basically the things that I like and you can attach certain things to that depending on how you look at it. So I'll give you an example. When I was first starting, I took a lot of commissions. Like I would, I still take commissions today not as many, but people would say, oh, can you write a story about this? Can you write a story about this? And then one of the requests that I got was something that was very common. It'd be like, can you do a transformation story where a woman like turns into a cougar? She becomes like an older woman and she becomes all assertive and, and that. And I was like, okay, I guess I can do that. And one of the things that was fun is that kind of can play on both of those things. It can be an alternative way of looking at beauty. And it can also be like the female dominance thing, depending on how you look at it. So it's 
I don't know, just like I, when, when I phrase it that way, it sounds in my mind, I'm sure I'm leaving something out, but yeah. I hope that gives you a rough picture of what it is. Yeah. I wonder if you've ever written about interracial relationships or polyamorous relationships or other sort of relationship styles besides the sort of elevator, like you start dating, you, you get married, you buy a house, you have kids, blah, blah. That's the relationship elevator model. I'd be curious if you've written about relationship anarchy or stories where people are queer in the beginning. It's not like queer is the sudden transformation that happened to them, but two lesbians who are lesbian, who have dated other lesbians are now dating. Like, <laughs> Yes, have done that. My most recent story from Karen Dick is a story where you have one character that does start out as a lesbian. One character, there's like a bit of a transformation, but I have done stories where characters both start out as queer. I have done stories where with interracial relationships and I'm in a interracial marriage myself nice. because my wife is Chinese and she speaks Chinese as her first language. That's a topic that is always of big interest to me. I would like to do a story that talks about the experience of immigration at some point. I was like a visual novel game. I had this idea of a story where a woman who is American-born Chinese decides that she wants to visit China for the first time and meet some of her relatives that are living over there. But on the plane ride over, she gets transported back in time. And then when she gets off the plane, she lands at essentially like a mythical, magical China from 1,000 years ago. I think that would be a really cool idea to talk about the immigration experience in reverse and have some like Alice in Wonderland elements to it. So that's one of the ideas that's like a future visual novel one day type of a thing. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So many good things to talk about. So we're getting towards the end of the questions that I have for you. I have maybe three or four left. So if just this is our last call for folks in the chat. If you do have any questions you want to ask, TF, go ahead and plunk them in the chat or the AMA channel in Discord. What tips do you have for aspiring writers and game devs, people who have maybe seen Wicked Willow and want to make something cool because you inspired them or what have you? What advice would you give those folks? So the most important piece of advice I need to give people who want to do this has to do with the way we have this kind of input output system. So typically if people who are like aspire to be indie create something, whether it's like art or writing or a game and it isn't successful, like financially, the first thing they'll think to themselves is, oh no, I didn't do a good job creating my artwork. People don't like it. Or I didn't do a good enough job spreading the word. Like I failed as a marketer or something. Mm -hmm. And they'll feel bad about themselves and feel bad about what they created. And then they just won't want to create anything anymore. That's the pattern I've seen over and over again. And I just want to like immediately let you know it's not your fault. If people don't buy your stuff, it's not because you didn't create something worth buying. It's because the systems that we have for distribution are stacked so that the vast majority of people who attempt to do this are going to fail. That's just the reality of it. And you have to make peace with that before you start so that you don't get like your soul crushed if it's very rough going for you in the beginning. And it will almost certainly be difficult for you at the start if you keep at it it may still continue to be difficult for you for potentially years if you happen to be in a specific niche that either doesn't have a huge amount of interest or alternatively has too much interest and you get drowned out by other creators who are more successful than you. And the way being drowned out works is that you don't even necessarily have to have an inferior product. If you just happen to show up late to the party, you're not going to get recommended on Amazon's algorithms like ever. So yeah, just be aware of that. And the other thing I would say is that because it's so difficult, don't plan 
your career around being able to make it financially successful, because again, most people aren't able to do that. So the right way to think about it is it's going to be a hobby that will potentially make you some small amount of money, maybe a little bit, maybe a moderate amount, maybe a small chance it will be a big amount, but it's just going to be a hobby. And you also need to think about the, when you do this distribution, it's just a way to reach more people than you would normally. And if some people like it, if some people want to buy it, great. If not, don't take that as a reflection on you, basically. And the other thing I would say is do not sink a huge amount of money into any type of training course or marketing service that will like aim to help you be successful because the vast majority of that is crap. Like you can get most of what you need just by watching free videos on YouTube. Don't spend like hundreds or thousands of dollars on any type of like professional service that's aimed at helping creatives. Yeah, there's a whole industry around helping creatives create, and it's it's good to be choosy about spending yeah. money on that stuff. <laughs> yes, some of it can be good, but my experience is that the elements of it that are good, most of the stuff is also available for free, so you don't really need it. And then there's also a lot that's just bad. Imagine paying like $500 for advice that's like actively going to hurt you. Yeah. So yeah, like just don't. Just don't do that. Okay, so we have a question from the chat. Is there a good place to find your written content? Yes. What's the best way for me to do this? Should I share it to you in Zoom or what? Sure. Yeah. Okay. And we can make sure, I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes, everyone. So if you're watching this later on YouTube or listening to the podcast, if you look in the description of this piece of media, you will see all the links that we're about to get here during the live show. Okay. Um, did you get that? Sure did. And I'll pop it in the Twitch chat for everyone too. That's my Amazon store, which also contains like a link to my blog. Awesome. Yeah, you can read most of my stuff for free. I always feel bad for people who don't have a lot of money who want to read my stuff because I don't want to just be like, you should pay for it because I worked hard for it. It's like, I understand a lot of people don't have money. So you can actually read 60, 70% of the stuff for free by joining the Amazon Kindle Unlimited program, which costs like $15 a month or something. So you can do that and read most of the stuff for free. And then you can even cancel the program later on. You, you don't have to spend a huge amount of money if you don't want to. You can spend like $15 and read most of my stuff. But if people want to tip you or send you gratitude dollars for showing up today, do you have a PayPal or Ko-Fi or something that they could do that or a website somewhere? Yes, I do. Awesome. Let me go ahead and do this. So this is the donate page on my website. Nice. Which also has a link for commissions. If anyone's interested in doing a story commission, they can do that too. Story commissions are fun, but there's a whole there's a whole thing. I, I could talk forever about that, so I'll try to limit myself. I'm sure. My next question is actually, is there anything we missed about queer game development that you'd like to make sure you say? I don't know. Queer game development is pretty awesome. It's pretty cool being able to share things with people. I remember back in like 2015, the only game which had any queer representation at all was Life is Strange, which is a really cool game, by the way. I really love Life is Strange. It was like one of my inspirations for Wicked Willow. But it did make me sad that that was the only one. And now, obviously, there's a lot more mainstream representation than there was in the past. But I think what's important to keep in mind is that queer game development isn't something that exists solely because you want to make a game that has representation, right? There's like a whole nother thing to it where it's like, 
if there happens to be one person that tells a story about a bisexual character like Zacharias and Hades or whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean like we've checked that box. That's oh, we guess we don't need any more games about bisexual people. So, no, you can make as many stories as you want to. There could be like an unlimited number and like whatever your particular voice is, whatever you feel compelled to say or share, it's not necessarily something that's the right way to phrase this. It's not necessarily something that's limited by the amount of like space other creators have taken up based on their specific identity labels. The fact that there's been more representation now, I think doesn't take away from the need to have like more indie voices in the future. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. It does. I think it'd be cool if every game ever had more representation that would be really cool i like, yeah what if it I, wasn't I, a niche no. it was just like the standard is there's always representation for race and gender and sexuality and ability etc yeah i think that would be really awesome if that was the case i think it would be like it would it's especially because people are not a monolith but like they're, 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 you can have multiple you can have multiple different views even within one really small community. So that's sure. the thing is it's not necessarily about being able to say, oh, we have this one character, so we picked up this particular voice. It's, yeah, but different people can have totally different voices. And I think even like having people have a debate, like showcasing two people from one community who have two very different perspectives, I think that can also serve a lot. So yeah, I very much wish that your dream would come true. So can you share an experience with gender euphoria, a time when you really felt like you were embodying your gender? Oh gosh, that is sure a couple that I experienced with my wife. And one, one of them was that she create she recreated my favorite scene from the anime Kashimashi. Has anyone seen Kashimashi? I have not. Oh, Kashimashi is a like a gender change themed anime, which has like the most bizarre premise ever where a spaceship lands and crushes someone and essentially their body gets like the aliens try to bring them back to life, but they accidentally change the person's gender. And that's like, supposed to be comedy, but it's actually really hilarious and cute. So she like recreated the scene in that in that story for me, which was really nice. Like there, there's a childhood best friend that the main character like has a crush on and like uh, that character, like back when the character is a guy, he he tells her, oh, I wish when they're seven years old, he says, I wish when I grow up that I, that I could be your bride. And then she's, yeah, but you're a boy. You'll be my groom. And he just looks sad. And then later, after he has the magic transformation, she gives him a hug and she says, now you can be my bride. And it's just like the coolest moment ever. It's just so cool. I know I'm not doing the scene justice, but my wife was like trying to recreate that scene for me in real life. And it was like the most amazing thing ever. And then I had another experience recently where like i got these like shoes at a shoe store i think i mentioned this in the discord do you remember that i don't off the top of my head what happened was i was in like a shoe store and i was trying to buy some new shoes and i was trying to buy these like shoes that have this plushy little interior and what happened was that my wife noticed that they were in like the women's section and i didn't even know that they were and i was like oh okay i'll just put them back then and she's like oh, no they look good just get them and i was like that sounds awesome so i got them and it was just like a such a small thing but it just made me feel really good. I love that. Yeah, okay, now I'm starting to remember the shoes a little bit. It was a while ago, though. It was a couple of weeks, right? It wasn't like this um, week. It was a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Yeah. Nice. 
Um, so let me pull up the thing here. The very last question that I have for you is what would you like to make sure that folks know about your perspective on gender and non-binary or trans issues? What is my perspective? I think I've described myself in terms of my like question marky identity thing. I know one of the things that I've heard a lot of people talk about on, on like Twitter and stuff is they ask this question like, oh, I have these feelings, but does that mean I'm really trans or not? And, or are my feelings valid? They'll ask these sort of questions and those questions always, hold on one second. Let me go check something. Yeah. Is getting some sort of delivery today potentially and told me this might happen. So what we're going to do next when Wright is back is we're actually going to raid over to Wright's channel. I'm back. I'm back. Welcome back. <laughs> okay. What was I saying? Oh yeah. Be yourself and you yeah. don't have to ask yourself whether or not your feelings are valid. Just be you and then just. Don't try to like worry about it beyond that. Yeah. Be yourself. I love it. That's wonderful advice for anyone in most yeah. situations. Okay. Let me see if I can set up my OBS thing. Okay. So while you're working on that, I will wrap the, the podcast part of the show. So folks, just as a reminder, TF Wright is an indie queer game developer. You can check out their game on Steam. It's called Wicked Willow. I will plunk some of that info in the chat here. We've also got the Amazon link, which has all of her books that you can buy. And then if you want to tip him, then there's also the My Transformations website where you can go to the donate page and make a donate. Since TF uses any pronouns, I just use three different ones. Haha. <laughs> Next week's guest, we're going to have Phoenix, who uses they and per, like person, pronouns. And we'll be discussing intergenerational trans connection and aceness or asexuality. So if you'd like to hear some chats on age and asexuality and being trans in the midst of all of it come on back next week for that and yeah it's oh my gosh so fun so jennifer would like to thank our guest for being on the podcast feel free to join us live on twitch on mondays check out the replays on youtube on fridays and keep an eye on your favorite podcasting platforms for edited audio only versions as never kitty likes to say trans rights are human rights that's right